0: The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Laura Bennett. This season, we're focusing on the New York Comedy Club and cultural institution Comedy Cellar, which was founded in 1982 and has since been the starting ground for comedians like Chris Rock, and Jon Stewart, and Sarah Silverman, and many, many others. This week, I'm talking to Marina Franklin, who has been a seller comedian for so long that she's not even sure exactly how long she's been there, but it's somewhere in the ballpark of a decade and a half. Marina is extremely funny, and it was really interesting to hear her explain how different working at the cellar is now compared to the way it was when she started— as the cultural conversation about the role of political correctness in comedy has changed, and also as the club itself has gotten less male and macho and more diverse.
1: What's your name and what do you do? My name is Marina Franklin, and I am a stand-up comedian.
0: (laughs) When did you first get passed at the Comedy Cellar?
1: Oh, my God. You know what? I don't. I should have that date in my calendar, but it's been years. I've been there for about 12 years, probably more. It's probably 15 years, but I don't want to admit to that. That's That's like saying my age. (laughs) But I think it's probably a good 12,
0: 15 years. So do you remember what it was like to get past? Can you take us back? Oh, yes. Well, before that,
1: they asked me to audition. And I, I was too scared. I, You know, everyone wanted to work at the Comedy Cellar. It was this place where the top comedians from the world worked. And it was really like Tough Crow was the scene then on Comedy Central. And I was... Probably about maybe six or seven years into stand-up at that point. Yeah, about seven years in. And I was still nervous and Pollyanna-looking.
0: What do you mean by Pollyanna-looking?
1: Wide-eyed and just happy and, hi, just so, nice to everybody. So what are you like now? Oh, I'm definitely not that person. <laughs> I'm, I am definitely the person that says, I don't work for you in that capacity.
0: <laughs> That's a good line. <laughs> That's who I that am now.
1: So it was the year that I did Last Comic Standing. I got to look back and... See when that one's and right after that I was in front of the cellar because I worked around the corner at the Boston Comedy Club Just barking people in and getting stage time when I could but I was still on last comic standing and I had gotten so far I went to Vegas and I was standing in front of the cellar. I was standing with Greg Rogel and Esty was there and Esty said that she had seen me and that I should audition and I was very shy and she was like, why don't you want to audition? Mm -hmm. I won't impersonate her because she gets very upset when people (laughs) do it. But I do a very good impersonation, but I won't do it out of respect for her. So she did say that to me. She said, why don't you audition? I saw you. You know that, right? I saw you. You're funny. And I was just like, I had in my head... That this was the hardest place and you have to be 100% ready. And I didn't know that. And I was always very aware of like, do only do things when you're ready for it. And I was just too nervous. And I had other people who had worked the club who weren't working there anymore. Who were like, yeah, you need to be in the right mindset. So why weren't they working there anymore? They just stepped. They weren't. They didn't they didn't make it <laughs> they just weren't getting the spots they just you know it was a tough room it was a tough room so some people would get passed but you have to stay in and some of those comics were like yeah you, you got to be in the right frame of mind when you work that club and I just wasn't sure and she thought it was so cute because everybody else who wasn't ready was ready Audition, and here I was. She was saying, "You're ready. I want to see you. Please audition." And so, what'd you say in that moment? Okay, (laughs) like that. And then I auditioned. I think it was a week later. I I remember thinking about it every day. I remember thinking about the set. I remember talking to Keith Robinson, who was like a mentor to me, saying, "You want to do your best stuff. Don't go up there. Don't go too long. When you get the light, get off." and when I auditioned, I did that set the same that I did at Last Comic Standing, and it killed. It destroyed, and it, it felt great. was the exact same set? Same set. I mess around. You don't mess around. You can't, you can't explore on your audition
0: for the Comedy Cellar. So is Essie standing in the back of the room?
1: Yes. Actually sitting. She used to have a chair right at the door that she would sit in every show. Now you go there, you see she's upstairs, but she used to sit in that chair for every single show. But all I was thinking of that set and destroying, she passed me, and that was it. What was in that set? What were some of the your favorite jokes that you told that I night? still do one of the jokes because it's my name joke. That's my name. That's not going to change. It just is, uh my name's Marina, which is not a great African name. It's not. My sister, she got the African name. Her name's Naila, which means one who succeeds... Marina means a place where you dock boats.
0: <laughs> That's very funny.
1: I did that, and it, it always, it's funny. It's my oldest joke because it's my name, and it is what it means, but it works universally everywhere. There is not a place, a country, a continent that it doesn't work. Everyone gets the meaning of it, and then some. So, yeah,
0: so that worked. So you killed it. How would you know you killed it? You could just feel it in the room? I felt it, yeah.
1: There was a slight moment where I was like, "Uh uh-oh, pick it up. And I was like... What was happening at that moment? That moment, I remember thinking, this is a hard room. I think I followed Dave Attell. It's not like you're auditioning and you get a cushion spot. You're auditioning and she wants to see if you can handle that room, no matter who's on stage. So what makes it such a hard room? Because you're following (laughs) people like Dave Attell or, you know... Keith Robinson, Colin Quinn, Bill Burr was working then. Chris Rock may stop by. And when I was past, of course, that week that I was going up, Chris Rock was stopping by. So that's what makes it, in our heads, a hard room, is the, the legends of comedy stop through quite often. And you may follow them, and you have to really be able to handle that you have to be able to be you if you go to the comedy sale you rarely see a bad set rarely there's very few stories of you coming out and going wow that one comic took a fat one huh Whew, that was awkward but you will rarely have that experience
0: so how did you find out you've been passed you go outside and sd came up to you or what happened
1: well what happens is after you finish well then she was sitting in the chair but she goes upstairs with you then she sits down with you and she gives back then she gives you a number to call and you put in your veils on Sunday. I think it was Sunday then. I can't remember. I think it was Wednesday. The days have changed. But I'll tell you what, that day. You never is. I think it was a different day then, but that day stuck with you. And no matter where you were in the world, you knew you had to call in your avails. So there is a story actually, me, Rachel Feinstein, Jay Ogerson, Joe DeRosa, we're all in Amsterdam. We're on a show out there for their festival and their TV show. And we knew that it was the day to call in for avails. We used a, uh, one of those pay cards. We were all nervously like, we've got to all make call in, because if you don't call in, you don't get your spots, and that's important.
0: So what was it like the very first time you performed there?
1: Scary, still, Mm -hmm. because I knew I had an understanding that that there were people who had passed and weren't working there, so I wanted to stay in the club. I wanted to make sure that happened. Right. So
0: So Uh, that's interesting, because I mean, in all the interviews I've done, you hear a lot about the momentousness of getting passed at the cellar, but... Haven't heard a lot of those stories of people just kind of, like, slowly fading out of the cellar. If you are obviously not getting laughs, you will
1: be faded out. You know, there's an energy there that is expected. And at that time, we were talking like 13 years ago, the club wasn't as packed as it is now. I mean, it was always, like, a good show, and there were always people who were fans of comedy, But they used to take uh, shows and combine it. Like, you know, the 8 o'clock show would blend into the 10 o'clock show. So that was just one long show. So that audience that came in at 8 is still there at 10. You have to be able to make that person laugh. That's not easy. Now, what kept me in it was the fact that I hosted a lot. So S.D.T could see that I had like a likable energy and people seemed... I seemed to introduce well. I can manage the ship. I can run the ship pretty well. So she had me hosting for years. I hosted for probably about a good eight years. Did you like hosting? No.
0: (laughs) What
2: didn't
1: you Uh like about it? Hosting means you have to be engaged in a real way with the audience. You have to interact with them and I'm not a great listener so it was difficult. Jim Norton used to make fun of me actually a lot of times because I would ask people questions. You see a a host is really like listening and engaged when they ask a question. I would ask a question and then I'd fade out while they're answering. (laughs) Jim would see me literally walk away and he was like oh it's the best. He goes I love seeing you host and then giving the (laughs) intros you got to Remember everyone's their their names, what they were on. That was part of it. If you got that wrong, you had some comics. You know they have egos, so you weren't just dealing with the audience in your set. You weren't just focused in on the material, right? As you go up and you do your set as just a comic, you're just doing your material. As a host. You've got to do everything. You've got to introduce them. You got to make sure everyone's happy. You got to make sure the comic's happy. You got to make sure the staff is aware of what's going on. You got to talk to
0: the manager about that transition that's going to happen between the eight o'clock and the 10 o'clock show. But even though you were so bad at engaging with audience members that you would wander away while they were talking, you still (laughs) still kept at it for eight years. They kept you in the game. What made you good at hosting? Your likable energy? I was likable at least.
1: (laughs) And I I did get faded out for a little bit. I had a really bad night of hosting. In that transition that I'm referring to, there was a point when they had sat the room. Now, this wasn't The club's fault is this manager at the time that was there. He's not there now. But it was just everyone came in while I was on stage, walking in, sitting down. Imagine not settled getting drinks. So that was a pretty bad moment for me. So what was so bad about it? Well, no one was laughing. (laughs) That's usually what's bad about it. Nobody was laughing. And
0: I had... You can't really go into your material. What does that feel like when that's happening, when nobody's laughing?
1: It feels dangerous like territory because at that point, too, because I wasn't as seasoned as a comic, I didn't know where to go. I mean, it teaches you because you have to really rely on who you are, like your personality comes through. So it was a hard lesson. You learn that you're funnier than your material, if you're funny, that is. That's actually what taught
2: me how to be a better comedian, was hosting. What's the best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Rules and restrictions may apply.
0: You've been working at the seller for a very long time, obviously. And you talked a little bit about how the seller has changed and that it's gotten more crowded, more popular, longer lines outside, more crowded rooms, whatever. But also the kind of culture of comedy has changed a lot with the rise of, you know, political correctness as a buzzword oh. and social media and kind of the backlash culture, or you will, or cancel culture how has that changed your job?
1: Specific to the cellar, I will say that when I used to go there, there were more men in the room. So as a female comedian, you had to be strong because the energy was not, you know, it's its not the cellar. It was just the, the guys' attitudes back then were girls are not funny. And here's the thing. Also, the girls weren't, supportive either in the audience well these were the girlfriends of the guys right so a lot of times I would be on stage I kept thinking am I imagining this feeling and you know 95% of the room is just mostly men and now I don't know why that was I really can't say I don't know if guys go out to see live comedy more and now that's changed but that's possibly it more people are interested in seeing a woman comic now than they were back then. So it feels different now? Yeah, it feels different, but I'll say I haven't changed. So I was still getting laughs because I knew I had to get laughs. It 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 didn't matter whether it was an all-guy audience or all-female audience or or whether they were giving me a nasty look or not, which they were. But I still would change that, so... I would say now what's happening is you have women in the audience, more of them, rooting for you. Whereas before, that wasn't there. So they want to see a woman on the lineup. Uh, they want to see diversity on the lineup. That's changed a lot.
0: Has uh, it changed at the seller specifically? Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, everywhere. Not just at the seller, everywhere. But the seller, for the most part, is doing the best of it. If, if In my personal opinion, the seller is doing the best of that job, but they are basing it on still funny. So it's not just diversity for the sake of diversity. It's these are legitimately funny comedians that need to be here. So the audience has changed in that way, too. You have more Indian um, com- comedians there, brown people are coming to the show now I may have seen it before you know if you see a Z on sorry you know like now the audience is coming there because they know he's going to be that his fan base is there so yeah that in that way that has changed a lot the political correctness answered now I will say that in the past you could do pretty much anything you wanted on stage and the cellar was that room for you I watched comics, get up there and say some of the craziest thoughts. I would watch Godfrey, Nick DiPaolo. You know, Nick DiPaolo is not politically correct, but he would go up there, and that's why people went, because they wanted to see these ideas, or these thoughts that these comedians had. Now, the energy has become so sensitive in the room that those thoughts are being objected in live form. It doesn't always happen there. The good thing about the seller is they manage the room so well that the audience knows if they shout out, if they do that, they'll be ejected from the room. There's a lot of presence to let them know you can't do that. It still happens. I mean, people still, they protest, they do all kinds, you, you know what's going on. Everyone's like, you know, why are women still working the club when Louis's there? You know? What did you think about the
0: whole Louis stuff?
1: Well, I, I have a difficult time talking about it because Louis gave me a lot of opportunities. And in honesty, I may be slightly biased. So I try not to say. But I did find that the strangest moments were having women ask me to not work because he was there. Uh, they would tweet at me. And it wasn't that often. I I stay out of stuff. You respond? Nope. I don't respond. Because there's, what do you say to someone who's asking you not to work as a woman? So you would like for me to step down from my job so this guy can work. No, the thing you need to see is me on stage speaking while he's there. So you can hear my voice. That's what needs to happen. That's what it's for.
0: What was it like as a sort of a, a regular in the seller lineup to weather that backlash, to sort of see how suddenly the comedy seller's name was everywhere and everyone, every talk show, everyone was talking about Louie? I mean, how did that feel for you?
1: It was weird. It, you know, I don't respond right away. This is what everyone needs to learn is to take a moment, take a beat, take a breath, don't comment right away. And just be human. A lot of people had raw emotions and it was understandable. But we're we're living in a time where there's a lot of people dealing with trauma. So you don't know how some people, what their trigger words are or, or feelings. So I just stepped away from it. That's pretty much what I did. I chose not to comment on a lot of stuff. If they asked me to comment, I would say what I just said to you. But for the most part, I'm still a comedian, so a lot of times I had funny answers about things. I mean, I was still joking about a couple of things because I, you know, Louis had, uh, when he was doing his show on HBO, he was naked. I don't know if you remember that. I forgot it was called Louis. but he was naked in it and he rolled around and his penis is, it shows. And I had a dream about it. And then the next day, I, as a comic, this was pre all the stuff. So I said to him, you know, I had a dream about it. And he said, really? And that was it. That was our exchange. There, there was then, no more to that exchange? Nothing. So then when all of this came out, I was like, oh, my God. I was the only one who asked to see it. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I hope they don't interview me. And now it's here on your show. Wait, but did you ask to see it? or you? Well, just to... it was kind of like that. Yeah, I was flirting. So then when all of this came out, I was like, oh, no. And then everyone, I would tell people that story and they would. everyone would break off into little reasons why he didn't show it to me or what that psychology of that was and what that means. And it was just like, you know, I had no clue who he was. I didn't know.
0: What was the vibe, you know, when like Louis made his first reappearances at the cellar after everything that happened? What was the vibe like with him at the table?
1: I never was there when he, the the beginning moments of it. So I didn't see that. I saw him at the gym. I was there working out at the gym and I saw Louis, and I said oh you work what are you doing he goes oh my therapist is in that building I go you should say that everywhere you, wherever <laughs> they see you if they go hey what are you doing out you go my therapist is in that in the in the park in Central Park yes
0: <laughs> oh that's very good yeah so that was right in the thick of everything
1: that was in the thick of everything I was
0: did there. he did he laugh at that
1: I never shared that with have. Oh, you I sh- didn't share I that, share that, with, that with other people, but <laughs> yeah. I, I think I should because he could use it. So, yeah, so when all this went down, and and Gnome and, and was, you know, Gnome always looks like like he just came out of a steam room <laughs> because of the stress. <laughs> Did he look particularly like he didn't do <laughs> in the steam room during yeah, his the loose? Yeah, looks like, you know, like he's always holding his head. <laughs> He's trying to have conversations. He's trying to understand the the world around it. you know. But there was a lot going on. There was a lot of division. There was a lot of talks at the cellar. Yeah, so tell me
0: about those talks. How did they play out?
1: Well, the only thing I will say is there were different conversations going on with the guy comics that were going on with the girl comics. And a lot of times, I just sat back and listened. I'm not going to say what they said, but I will say it was very... Different, And then sometimes you have conversations with both of them and the conversation would be more
0: nuanced. So without telling me specifics about what they said, what were the general contours of what they were saying? The Guy comics. The
1: Guy comics, some of them were really offended by what Louis did. Like angry about it. Like wanted to do something, you know, to help. And then some of them were... Confused by what the stories were, and some of them had other information, and some guys were just like, "It's not a big deal." What he showed us, you know, his thing. It was interesting to see that how those conversations changed as the controversy got more and more, and there was more stories coming out about other men. So the more of those stories came out, the less you heard these guys saying, I don't see what the big deal is. Uh, there was a fear that had trickled through the comedy scene amongst the guy comics. It was a, sort of like a, I could get, you know, like a guy would be talking about how this wasn't a big deal or a guy would be talking about how it was a big deal. And then his story came out.
0: Did that fear you're describing manifest in their sets also?
1: Yeah, well, a lot of them were, t- were talking about being attacked as men. Uh, some of them would talk about being a white guy and how being a white guy was just awful. So that's like the new like transition in comedy is like white guys are in trouble and they, they have now their little, their pain. They have pain now. And then there were the women on the other side of it. It was interesting. Their women were divided too. Oh, and here's the other thing. There was division amongst people Louis helped and the people mm, he didn't
0: help. That is super interesting.
1: So there were people talking from the point of view of they never liked him. And I knew that. So that's why I said, you know what, I'm going to step out of this one. Because as a black woman in an industry that has a difficult time being validated This man came in and did that for me in a very big way. He put me up at Madison Square Garden. He did a lot of things. That's the only interaction I've ever had with him is compliments, compliments, compliments. I've never had anything else. So I knew that even in talking about it, I wasn't going to say the right things, most likely, to someone who honestly went through something. So I had to be very careful Mm -hmm. about that.
0: This is the story of The One. Find that there was a sort of new sensitivity in the room after that. Oh, yeah.
1: I mean, going on stage and saying anything sexual about a guy in a way that, like, I tend to talk about dating assholes. I tend to talk about how I like guys being creepy. I t- I, that's how my act was in the past. I couldn't do that. Really? Anymore. Yeah, no, I had to be fully aware of what was in the room, the energy that was in the room. Did you
0: not do that because you didn't feel comfortable doing it? You didn't feel like it was kind of appropriate comedy anymore? Or just strategically, you didn't think it would land well? I just went with my gut. Mm -hmm. There was no strategy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know, every now and then you still slip into something and you can get a response from the audience and it'll let you know. I'll give you an example of not about the Louis thing, but this is something different. This is about police brutality and the amount of black men that were being shot, and I have a joke about, you know, dating a brother, a black man, and that when I went on the date with him, he wouldn't pick me up because he said he had a nice car. I've heard this joke. And I turn into, like, a white girl. I'm like, what are you talking— He's like, I have a nice car. The police could pull me over. And I'm like, the police are here to protect you. And I go into a white girl voice. I was like, I don't understand, like— I just, like, I'm not a walker. I'm not going to walk on the day. Like, what are you talking about? So it's just a funny joke. And the joke was written before all of this. All of the Black Lives Matter, you know, protests. And when I would do that joke during a news cycle of this, each time the audience chose not to laugh. Really? Really. They would go, oh! Because the audience only, their
0: sensitivity level was there. Right. It just feels like it would kind of deflate the tension. To you would tell. think.
1: And here's the thing. A lot of times I would say afterwards, maybe if they stop shooting black men, this joke could actually last for a little bit longer. Than you would you. say that? <laughs> yeah, I would say that. I was like, you know. Would that get a laugh? Yeah. You know, or sometimes they'd be like, oh, because some people just, they don't know. They're just there for
0: the moment. They're just feeling what they're feeling. So are you not doing the jokes anymore about... Liking men who treat you badly or whatever they'll do. I do it were.
1: carefully. Mm-hmm. I had one. I'm working on. It's very new, so I even shouldn't even say it. But I, I'm trying. I I just want to say I'm misusing my sexuality. That's all I want to say on stage. But it's like I said it, and the room was so quiet and scared. You can hear scared. <laughs> Believe yeah, what it a, or not, what does scared sound like? Silent. Scared is quiet as. Can I curse on here? Silence Silent is quiet as fuck. <laughs> yeah, I I was just talking because I have I've had like a lot of like stuff in my house I need to get fixed. You know, my refrigerator, my toilet needed to be reset. You know, guys help you more when you show a little shoulder. But you know, you want to move a refrigerator now. These are just. This is who I am. This is me, Marina Franklin, just being funny. But I know right now, I if I put that out there, I gotta be very responsible in the way that I do it. Because there are women in the audience right now who have tr- their triggers are are set. So and I'm not a type of person who just doesn't care about that. If I was that type of comic- Yeah, I would... a lot
0: of comics are the type of people who just don't care about no, it. No, that's not true. I feel like a lot of the ones I've sort of met and talked to have been like I'm just going to be funny. I'm going to do No,
1: they're lying to you. (laughs) They're lying.
0: I'm telling you. I've seen it. For me
1: you know, it is about taking a moment and being a little bit more respectful and responsible about what you're putting out there when you do it. I have another joke. You saw the they joke about trans you know, like getting Yeah, you want to just wrong. give a little bit of a summary of that? Yeah, it's it's really addressing so many things I don't even think, sometimes I write jokes I don't even understand how great it is. It's really accidentally brilliant. Sorry, I'll <laughs> pat myself on the back Please. on that one. But as I, they've evolves. the jokes evolve over time, but that joke was written out of You know, saying they uh, when referring to someone who is not a he or a she and messing up and saying, accidentally saying he when it's they want they. And I set up the joke as in a very, in a very serious way. You know, that's how they want to be referred to. It's important. But in a sentence, it's structurally weird for me because it does make me sound like a runaway slave. And it's just an accidental, like, it's just a thought that I had one day. I'm sitting there and I'm like, they's coming? I can't say that. They's out there? That sounds like a runaway slut. So it just means <laughs> How long funny. ago did you write that joke? I was think it was last year. But it was just, you know, and I, I said it to Bonnie McFarlane. She's like, that joke is brilliant. And I was like... It came because of an experience of coming out actually to Brooklyn and doing my podcast. So my podcast is 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 more woke than I am, but I came out to Brooklyn, and I had a guest on the show, they, and I kept slipping and saying she, and I had so many people in the audience genuinely get upset with me. And it was just not an intentional thing at all for any reason. But the way these, and I'm going to say it, white women made me feel there was something about that that I knew was very telling of our time and not right. I was like, you know, here I am doing something I think is good, which is I'm doing a podcast that features women of color. And then I have guests on the show that are talking about things like, you know, how they want to be referred to as they. And I'm being made to feel as a black woman guilty for not getting it right and it is something very new to me and I said there's something not right about this moment and I, and I, there was a little bit of anger that slipped in and I was like that's not good either because I do care and I do want to say the right thing but why am I why am I made to feel guilty and I was like oh this is what white people feel like <laughs> So, why people feel like this when they say things wrong? They're like, this is why they get angry. Instead of just understanding, they're
0: like, because guilt is a horrible feeling. It's so interesting how the anger doesn't come through in the joke. It's just funny. But that was the but animating was the in- spark. The, the yeah. beginning of most of my
1: jokes come from a lot of pain and anger. And so they take a while. And that's why they're good, I would think, good jokes. You know, the easy jokes or the fast jokes are like the little appetizer meals, you know. Here you go. Here's a nice little cute (laughs) joke for you. What's a cute joke? Like uh, like I, I talk about how being in Chicago is Midwest and they're nice and I bumped into someone there and they were like, oh, I'm sorry. And I was like, oh, I bumped into you. And they're like, well, I shouldn't have been here. <laughs> that's
0: very cute. See,
1: that's a cute, adorable. That's adorable. Funny, that's adore- you see, you could stamp adorable on that joke. It's there's Everyone can enjoy it. The world can laugh at that.
0: Because the way you write changed over the however many years, 13, 15 years you've been doing this.
1: I don't know what I do, but I i would say it's less fear. Yeah, more confidence. Confidence is, is the key. The seller creates a lot of confidence in a lot of comedians. So once you're working there and, and then you're following comedians that are strong, and if you follow them and you go up and you're destroying too, there's a confidence that kicks in. And back when it was a hard room and you would be on stage and you were like, this is a hard, because it was a hard room. Even though, you know, you're supposed to be killing, the audience was tough. It was like, oh, my God, I got to get this room of guys laughing. So then you went somewhere else and it was like easy. Everywhere else was like, oh, my God, I'm going to destroy this room. So it gave you the confidence to, like, just be good at any situation, doesn't matter what.
0: So the cellar just doesn't feel as
1: male as it used to anymore? No, it does not feel as male as it used to. There's certain shows, midnight shows, feel very male. Why is that? I don't know. I think they just feel safer getting home at night. How about that?
0: <laughs> I think that's a good theory.
1: <laughs> but it is very male. I will say I have the most fun on those shows, too, because the audience is open. They're loose. They want to hear whatever you want to say. They're not tight. Because A lot of times when we're on stage we don't actually know what the punchline is. That's how I work. I write on stage a lot of times. So Really? So, yeah, a lot of times. So how does that work? It takes a while. <laughs> I record my sets and I listen to them. Uh, but I just, I work with rhythm. Mine is rhythm with an audience. I go with organically, like, if they like something, I keep it in. If they don't, I try it again. If they still don't, i try it again. They do, like, a percentage thing, how many times they didn't like it. Try all different types of rooms with it. Yeah. The cellar is the final test, though. So you work at
0: a lot of different clubs also?
1: Yes. So I work, like, throughout the city, like, Gotham Comedy Club. Stand Up New York is one. Sometimes the West Side Comedy Club, but it's diminished. I, cellar really is my home club. It's really the only one that I... I go to.
0: Do you hang out at the comedian's table also?
1: Oh, I've been hanging out there for years.
0: <laughs> it's funny. They have showed a lot of the
1: Seller table and a lot of shows, but I, I, I feel like they've missed out on some key of what the Seller really is at that table. When I used to watch it. What do you mean? As a young comic, the Seller table, the, the sad thing is some of them are gone. They've passed away, but the Seller table consisted of like Keith Robinson and Patrice O'Neill and Colin Quinn, Rich Voss, Nick DiPaolo, tough crowd. It was a tough crowd. What do you mean when you say it was a tough crowd? Those guys would come at each other. They were doing the dozens, I guess you call it. But they were slamming. It was a roast in that table like no other roast. And these were really funny guys. They weren't crafting a joke with each other. They were just really funny. Some of the stuff that came out of their mouths, you either have that or you don't. Would you feel totally comfortable at a table with all those guys? I am now. Mm-hmm. But then, no. I I couldn't. I saw Patrice take a salt and pepper shaker. It was my friend Kyle was with me and he has like gray hair, grayish hair, I guess, popping in. Patrice, he put salt on the table then he put a little pepper in there. He goes, that's Kyle's hair. Look at that. And it was just That image of gray hair with a salt and pepper was the funniest thing I've ever seen. And I mean, that guy is still hurt to this day from that. You know what I mean? It's like he's really wounded about it. Some of the things landed so hard in those moments at that table that they've lasted throughout time, like stories like that. So, yeah, I mean, that was the table, and I would sit kitty corner from that table with Jay Oakerson and Kurt Metzger and Joe DeRosa and my friend Rondell, who's not even, you know, he does other clubs. And we would just wish to be at that table. We, we'd look at the table, but we never sat there. Do you remember the first time you sat there? I do. It was weird. Because I still didn't know if I should be there. And I was like, I think I should go. <laughs> I should get up. Because you had to be able to handle... What was happening in that moment. And I didn't I never thought I could. For a long time I stayed away from the table. I think for years I stayed away from that table. The only time I really I had to sit there was if I was hosting, obviously. So I that was my focus. Get the next comedian on. I never did all of that. I never went back and forth. Robert Kelly would do it. I I couldn't do it. I was bad
0: at it. So now you're a longtime seller regular. You just waltz up to the table and sit down whenever you want to? I sit there. I straddle the table. I,
1: <laughs> yeah. I demand respect when I'm sitting there. Oh, yeah. No.
0: that's. I feel table. like straddling the table is a good strategy to command <laughs> respect. Right? Yeah.
1: I, it is something to see the types of comedians have changed there, too. What do you mean by that? So, like, not everyone does that. That, you know, going at, doing the dozens, roasting personalities. Not everyone does that. At that time, those guys really hung out. Those guys were real friends. You know, Patrice, Voss, Nick DiPaolo, Jim Norton, Keith Robson, Greg Giraldo, Tom Papa, you know, and then you see Chris Rock come in. But those guys, I mean, Chris Rock was a star. Adam, you know, Sandler, star. Ray Romano, star. Those guys really were friends and now it's just it's so many more comics there that not all of them are friends and they don't all have that agreement that they can do the roasting because you got to have a relationship with someone to do that. You really do. And that's what's misunderstood sometimes.
0: So uh, one thing I wanted to ask you um, before we wrap is how did you get into comedy in the first place?
1: It was really because I was in Syracuse, New York, as a theater person. Um, I wasn't really great at sharing the stage or listening, but I—you find it, or it finds you. You know, you get into the art of entertaining. You don't always know where your lane is. And I moved to New York telling funny stories. My roommate actually—he booked me. Where'd you grow up? That's really what happened. Highland Park, Illinois. Then. Chicago South Side, and South Suburbs. So I grew up, like, I had a lot of transitions and I had to be like the chameleon in a sense. So I was always doing characters to survive as a child. And then when I went to, you know, I tried to do theater and acting. It was great, but it was not good. And then I started, I said, you know what? I like telling funny stories. I want to tell these stories. I used to tell these stories about my grandma Moot and how tough she was. And my friends would be like, tell that story again. So... I said, let me try it. If this acting thing don't work out, let me do a little joke here and there. And so yeah, I went to Gotham comedy club at the time it was a different location. I took a class, which is really looked down upon. Is it every, really every comedy seller comic at the table, I think they made fun of me for a long time. Aren't you took they- a class? Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> but I was from the school of theater, so I thought that's what you do. You know, you you learn some skills.
0: Was it a good class? No, it wasn't.
1: The only thing I got out of it was my name is Marina. It means a place where you dock boats.
0: That seems worth the uh, price of admission. Aww. (laughs) Whatever it was. And
1: then I've been doing it ever since. I said to myself, I set goals. I said, if this doesn't work out in two years, if I don't get a manager or someone that wants to really make this a thing where I make money, then I'm going to quit. And I never did. I've been doing it now. It's 20 years. You know, you have to decide. You have to make a decision, really, at some point in your career. If you want to make this happen, you've got to commit to it. It's a love relationship, and you make a lot of sacrifices. And I would say I've probably made some sacrifices. If I was to go back on, I would change. But you're in for it for the long haul. That's why I think older comedians demand respect about the craft of it. Because a lot of them have sacrificed a lot to get to where they are. I gave up. I stopped working. I stopped working a regular job. That's not an easy thing to do. That's a scary
0: choice to make.
1: But what was I had the regular
0: th- job you stopped working?
1: As a receptionist at a consulting firm.
0: You sound like you really liked that job. Oh, I hated
1: it. <laughs> well, no, I didn't hate it. I hated waiting tables more so. But it wasn't what I wanted to do. And I had to make a decision. And as soon as I quit that job, well, okay, let me go back. As soon as they fired me, (laughs) I became a better comedian because I was giving it my complete focus. You got to give what you love 100%.
0: So why do you think the seller feels like your home base? Well, if you're giving something you love 100%, you got to go to a
1: place that loves you. And that was the seller. That has always been the seller. The cellar is a place that cares about the comedians. That's all it takes. That's all it takes. Believe it or not, there's some places where you're like, I'm the reason you're here, and they don't treat you like that. That was what Manny wanted. He wanted the comedians who came in that space to know they're the reason that everyone is there. And that's all it took. And that's why that place is what it is. You feel good when you walk in. When the waiters come over to you, they come right to you, your priority. They protect you when you're there. You know, sometimes celebrities will come in, they don't want to be bothered. They make sure that celebrity feels okay. Chris Rock wants to be able to come in and feel okay. It's just a little step of just saying, I really do care about my product. And that's what matters. That's why I still go there. And that's why that's my home club and i love all the people there too. Esty is like she's like my mom. I don't she's my best friend, she's my mom, she's my girlfriend. But she's watched me grow. Nome, I've known Nome for years. Gnome is like fam- they're all like family to me. I don't even to think of it as like a workplace is one thing, but it's just really a it's a home. It really is. I mean, there are other clubs in the city you go to and you come out but you're not It's not the same feeling that that place gives you. The way it's set up. You could sit down somewhere away from the show and eat and talk and hear music. Where else in the city do you have that with comedy?
0: You've been there for so long and you work with all these great comics. What has that been like? So that has been the best part because you run into Ray Romano,
1: Dave Chappelle, Chappelle, I was on the Chappelle show, and he comes in to do a set, and he usually does long sets, like three hours long. I don't know if you knew that. I think he even took the audience out one time. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. Yeah, he said, everybody want to go? We're going to a party. The whole audience.
0: (laughs) He took them all to a party?
1: Left the room.
0: Oh, my God.
1: He's not allowed to do that anymore.
0: (laughs) But Yes.
1: There's no experience like you ever hear these experiences like that at any other comedy club that Chappelle did that at the Comedy Cellar. And then I was on stage. I had no idea he was in the room. I came off stage and he said, everything you're doing is funny and right. To hear that from someone like Dave Chappelle, because he really is like the goat. I mean, that's to me, that's the best part of doing this. At that room. You don't know. You're walking around. You're on stage. You you get this reception and the love from the audience. But every now and then, you know, the industry may not be right about what's funny. But you, the comedians always are right. Someone like Chappelle is very right about what you're doing. And so when you get that type of love or validation, and it is important. You know, some people don't need it. I need it. It's nice to hear. And it it gave me the confidence to do the work that I do at the cellar for another year.
0: Thank you so much for coming out.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: That's it for this season of Working. It was so much fun. Thank you for listening. Again, I'm your host, Laura Bennett. If you liked the show, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you have any questions or comments, you can write to us at workingatslate.com. Working is produced by Jessamine Molly. Special thanks to Justin D. Wright for the ad music.